Will medical innovations be able to keep pace with, or even outpace, the speed of disease? What will our future bodies be like when we're outfitted with technology that optimizes our health? How does that redefine what it means to be human? The boundary between being all natural and part cyborg, <laughs> whether that's a big deal or not, I can see those boundaries rapidly disappearing. I think it's just a function of our overall dependence on technology and our wish to you know, live with a greater number of superpowers than nature gave mm -hmm. us. Welcome to Health Tech on the Horizon, presented by Abbott. In this show, we explore the future of human health, medical innovations, and self-enhancement. Some of that tech is already here, and some of it is yet to come. I'm your host, Mike Rignetta, and today we're going to be talking about a kind of heart implant technology called Left Ventricular Assist Devices, or LVAD, L-V-A-D, which helps those with advanced heart failure stay alive. Joining me are Dr. Andy Fleischle, who studied at ETH in Zurich, which is the same university as Einstein. He's the head of the Abbott Mechanical Circulatory Support Office, where the full maglev technology for levitation for the LVAD devices was created. And Dr. Jack Kreindler, a physician, physiologist, tech entrepreneur, and the founder of the Center for Health and Human Performance in London. Uh, so thanks, both of you, for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. So I'm wondering how prevalent uh, this technology is right now, because heart disease is the number one cause of death in the U.S. Do you see this as becoming a very prevalent piece of technology? I know the, like, the ideal is that as few people need it as humanly possible, but I'm just really curious about both of your takes on um, the current and potential scale of use of something like this. Uh, when I was born, the average life expectancy in the UK was about 71 years old for a man. Um, it's now 79, 80, and that's just in 45 years. Uh, so things slowly start going wrong uh, after <laughs> six, seven, eight decades. Um, I'm noticing that after four, funnily enough. Um, and uh, if we are really going to be living long, longer and longer lives, we just have to face the fact that our hearts are one of those things with our, you know, three billion beats um, budget that we get. Um, it is one of those things that is just going to fail at some point, uh, however healthily we live. So, um, you know, heart disease being still the number one cause of death, heart failure is uh, a very significant part of that. And one thing that a technology like this enables us to uh, see is that there there is hope uh, and a bridge towards maybe you know more lasting solutions it needs to play its part i also think you know in the end it also comes back not only extending the life but also of quality of life with um, adding devices like an LVAD, this maybe goes one step further than it was before but also other things like a pacemaker or even a, let's say, if you have a broken bone and you take a piece of metal, you fix it, even a tooth which is replaced in your mouth. And the LVAD also improves your quality of life, probably also extends it if you're not suffering from something else. But in the end, I think it all goes back to quality of life. And this is really remarkable. And I was just wondering, like, you know, is the goal in putting together this technology, right, is it always to be increasing lifespan and then hopefully having health span sort of fill up the difference uh, or what's the sort of ultimate goal? I think we have 
kind of become accustomed um, to the notion that it's our right uh, to live as long as humanly possible. But uh, I obviously in my work have been principally involved not in extending human life years, but extending uh, quality uh, years. So uh, you want to call it health extension versus life extension. In, in line with the principles that Andy was talking about with what he would like his technology to produce, and that is to improve quality of life, not necessarily uh, increased length of life. And so if we can help unfortunate people who have ended up in cardiac failure for whom good quality life years are impossible to achieve and turn them back into independence uh, and enjoyment and the ability to work or, or be parents and grandparents and spouses and so on uh, that to me is the the highest point that we can achieve with medical technology but i think in general the dependence on technology is going to become a standard feature of uh, human existence and human health we are definitely uh, tied together very very closely with the machines that we make and that is i think really fundamentally different to perhaps how we thought about ourselves in the past because those technologies don't exist outside of us they now exist inside of us that is bioelectronics um, that is even the brave new world of genomic engineering it all really fits under one bonnet which is the fact that we are no longer what nature um, has carved us into being I think this idea of, of tech dependency is really interesting and whether or not that contextualizes any of the, the work that you guys do. It's this concept of becoming comfortable with your dependency on technology that's possibly the biggest thing that we need to uh, start to look at. I would like to also offer an example which is deep brain stimulation for people with Parkinson's disease. The chap called Matt Eagles is uh, diagnosed at, at the age of seven with Parkinson's disease. Fortunately, he's got a very slow progressing one, but uh, he's been living for um, o well over a decade with wires deep into the middle of his brain. And I mean, and it's a lot of the stuff that contextualizes our experience with technology generally. Technology is very ambivalent. You know, it is neither, it's not good nor bad. Mm. It's kind of both of those things in different measures at different times for different people, depending upon what the technology is. And that I think, you know, again, it's really reflective of the social moment. What counts as a cyborg? Oh. You know, and I think, right, there's like this idea that humans have been cyborgs since we were wearing clothing or since we, you know, invented shoes or like Andy, to your point, um, since we've had dental work, since people have been wearing glasses, since we sort of have a vestigial brain in the form of, of um, a mobile communications device. Uh, there's not really fundamentally that much difference uh, between relying on something every day and whether it's an implantable or whether it's something that you ingest. But I, I certainly do see the the difference between something that is sort of not a chemical, not a potion, not something you swallow or infuse, but uh, is is actually an electromechanical device that is implanted in you. That's my definition, really, of of, of cyborg. Is is kind of where the fundamental functions of your body uh, are augmented or replaced by uh, electromechanical devices. Do you think, Jack, that there is a sort of distinction that you're making, the, the inherent difference between, say, a chemical change to the body versus a piece of technology installed in it, that there is something inherent about that difference that will transgress 
a, a social moment or a generation, and that that will carry on to this generation of digital natives and their children's children? Do you think it's always going to be seen as like a fundamentally different kind of thing? Well, the boundary between being all natural and part cyborg <laughs> um, and, and, and whether that's a big deal or not, I can see those boundaries rapidly disappearing. Um, I, I, I think it's just a function of our overall dependence on technology and our wish to not just you know live but also live perhaps with a greater number of superpowers than the nature gave mm-hmm. us but i think it's it, it will eventually start moving into well how can i just augment my life i mean for instance if it's possible very very easily to both implant and and remove a um, something that improves your cardiac function then is that something that a long distance runner is going to want to um, have installed in them. Andy, um, I think a lot of people are really familiar with something like a pacemaker, like a device that gets put into your chest, produces electrical signals that help the heartbeat, keeps blood pumping throughout the body. I was wondering if you could just sort of walk us through the work that you've done, the technology that you've helped develop, and give us a sense of what it is and how it works and how it maybe differs. Okay, so uh, an Edward is not, uh, it's similar like a pacemaker, but it does something uh, significant differently. A pacemaker uh, triggers the heart to beat, and the, on the other side, the Edward is really, it's like a pump, like the heart is a pump. So if, you know, uh, a person suffers severe heart failure, then it might be that the muscle is not able to, to, to move all the the blood in the heart muscle into the body so you would need really a pump that takes the blood out from the left ventricle pumps it back into the aorta back into the body so that all the body has enough blood flow and oxygen with that in our case we use maglev technology which means that the rotor is completely contact free levitating within the blood without any contact to the stator so this means you don't have any any friction or any uh, blood cell damage, which is uh, very advantageous to for blood handling. Um, is it bad that my main touchstone for maglev technology is roller coasters? <laughs> it's amazing to think that that that's that that's what goes inside your chest. Yeah, I mean the roller coasters are maybe not even that bad of, an, of a comparison. Uh, it's also a moving part with a stationary part, and you have this touch point over time. You have you have um, damaged wheels and damaged rails and things like that. With our technology, there's no contact at all between the moving part and the stationary part. And more importantly, everything was in between uh, is not squeezed, not stressed. So, so this means the blood in between these two things remains in most optimal uh, shape or condition. There's also no wear out basically, and it can last very, very long. And uh, can you sort of talk us through what the development process for something like this is? How do you go about designing and and testing something that is sort of this um, high stakes? I I personally find it fascinating how you had a vision of the uh, underlying technology and then that moment that you had that kind of breakthrough of uh, sticking uh, a, a levitating rotor in somebody's aorta. I, I, I personally find that utterly fascinating. It is, wi- it it's is kind wild. Of like a, it's a huge <laughs> leap. 
what was that sitting in the bath seeing the the level rise eureka moment that you had was it was it was it in the bath or the shower was it? <laughs> it's fascinating to me at the very beginning we did some some research on maglev technology so magnetic levitation technology that enables this possibility to have this contact free rotor Back then, we didn't really know what what this technology should be used for. And then we also came in contact with many, many visitors, with energy industry, with semiconductor industry, but also with the medical device industry. And then we we received some feedback that, you know, this technology with a rotor that is running contact-free, um, this could be a perfect uh, pump to be used for a blood pumper. So that's how we came to that direction. And then with some other interactions with some partners, uh, we were able to, to, to bring out or, or to develop this LVET, what we have now in, in these people, uh, to help them. I was just going to say, you know, as a, having practiced medicine for, for now two decades and seeing heart failure many times in people and and actually myself once uh, i was lucky unlucky enough uh, i guess lucky from an experience perspective but unlucky enough to feel what heart failure is kind of like because once i um i believe it or not had too much coffee and ended up with an arrhythmia and it genuinely genuinely feels like you are dying and it's horrible the fact that your heart is out of rhythm in this case uh, for me so this was a uh, effectively a kind of a, a mini heart failure temporary mini heart failure as a result of my heart just not beating in synchrony properly um, and then getting that rhythm back again it's a little bit like uh, going from being in heart failure then having an uh, something like an LDAV device fitted going from literally feeling like you're dying to feeling like the world is on your side again. It it really is kind of remarkable. And and there there aren't actually that many things um, in medicine uh, which really are kind of light switches like that, where you go from darkness to light uh, almost instantly. Um, And those are the things that I think, are the bits of medicine, medical technology, medical engineering that we should really cherish. I wonder, Andy, if you could sort of take us through what is the distant horizon of this technology? What is it that seems just barely possible at this point? Um, I mean, an obvious one is today's LVAD. They still have a cable for the energy transmission from the outside world, which is batteries, uh, through the skin going to the LVAD, which is implanted. So we need to get rid of that. Um, uh, there are people working on that uh, all around the globe. It's not yet really available. So this needs to be changed. And uh, so the energy transmitting, transmitting can go through TET, so transcutaneous energy transmission. Then for sure, the, the device should get smaller, uh, easier to implant, um, things like that. And then add it with, you know, what I mentioned uh with um, like this smart pump, um, adding additional possibilities to gather more data uh, for self-diagnosis of both of, of the LVAD as well as of the patient, and which allows then uh, better treatment for the patient. So this is very much from a lay perspective, um, but there is one thing that I'm I'm very curious about, which is how 
technology like um, the LVAD shifts the experience of having a body. One thing that you hear a lot about is uh, is entrainment. When you're listening to a piece of music um, at a certain tempo, your physiology sort of like matches up. Um, you know, the thing that people talk about the most is you get really excited um, listening to very fast-paced dance music uh, and that this increases your heart rate. And I think personally, I'm just really interested how sort of technology like this relates to the general experiences of excitement or or calm. You know, I know that those things are whole body experiences, um, but, you know, like I also know that the heart sort of plays a role. And I was just wondering whether or not when you have something like this, it changes how you f feel those things. I mean, from from a technical or engineering point of view, um, if these feelings are going on or or appearing or uh, whatever, then you know, I mean, the LVAD doesn't change, so it remains with the speed which is going. But on the other side, I don't think. But it would be interesting question to ask some people who have one implanted. But I don't think that uh, this would change the feeling to something like music or so. There's still a native beat of the heart, which also can do a little thing. It's just that the, the, the native heart is not strong enough to provide the whole blood flow. Uh -huh. So I think it would be a very interesting question to, to ask uh, the next person that I will meet who has an LVAD implanted. So. I would love to see the latest version of your firmware, Andy, that had a Spotify plugin um, <laughs> that that changed its uh, pumping capability according to which nightclub you had decided to exactly. uh, go to that Friday. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, this this does move into you know the possibility in future that these devices aren't just life uh, restoring, but they're also life enhancing and. Uh, you know, can maybe provide people with uh, more than just a, a simple return to normality, but can start to, you know, emulate some of those phenomena that you described, Mike. Um, that the heart is uh, has many neurons in it and um, is is intimately connected to our emotions. Um, and so, I think the future of um, cardiac technology is is surely going to get closer to mimicking uh, the natural function uh, of of our biology. Fabulous. Thank you so much for entertaining my, <laughs> for entertaining my very specific question. Um, thanks again to uh, Andy Fleischley and Dr. Jack Kreindler. Um, if people want to see more of your guys' work, where can they go look? I, I've got a Twitter, a, a little Twitter feed at Dr. Jack UK, and people can find me on LinkedIn. Otherwise, if anyone's around the Marlebone area of uh, London and want a cup of tea and a tour of our little institute, you're more than welcome. I'm located in Zurich in Switzerland, uh, so that's where you can find uh, our site as well as our facility. We do have a coffee machine, we can take a cup of coffee and uh, you can find uh, also uh, everything on our website like abbott.com, so abbott.com, that's uh, where you can find everything. Alright, and Jack, if you go join Andy for coffee, you have to promise you're not going to have too much. I definitely won't. And um, if I do, I'm in very, very safe hands. <laughs> well said. Uh, and if you are so inclined, you can find me on Twitter at Mike Rugnetta. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.